I'm late. The episode's dropping on Mondays. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that podcast. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen, but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I feel two ways about our language. Words can have meaning and be powerful, or words can be nominal. It all depends on the context. If a comedian tells a joke, those words shouldn't have the equivalent power that someone like a politician would have if they said it. But if you're a writer, and despite lack of success, I do consider myself a writer, the right word can be used to describe a character or the way they conduct themselves. How does someone use greetings? Do they say hello, which is more formal? Do they say hey, which is informal? Do they say hi, like Sal Licata from Baseball Night New York? How does a character walk? Do they stroll? Do they saunter? Do they waddle? All of those words evoke different imagery. So I've always tried to use words that reflect my true sentiments, not an exaggeration. But sometimes I feel people aren't as thoughtful and misuse basic words. And I don't mean your versus your. For example, overrated. The majority of the time that I hear people using this word, it usually describes something that they just don't like. This band is overrated. That movie was overrated. That actor is overrated. Are they? With that being said, I'm going to undeniably, undoubtedly give you my top five overrated movies. Number five, The English Patient. I don't actually know if I've watched this movie, to be honest. I think I did. But I have the same feeling that Elaine Bennis does from Seinfeld. It's too long. Just die already. Number four, The Matrix. I've seen this movie once, and it was enough. I didn't get it. I'm sure there's some allegory that went way over my head. Great direction. Special effects were groundbreaking. But so are earthquakes, and you see the damage they cause. Now this is going to be controversial, because I know people love this next movie. Number three, Up. I've always enjoyed Pixar films. Finding Nemo is my favorite animated movie. They've done some incredible work over the years, outside of the Cars franchise. But I can't stand this movie. Doug and the Snipe made it tolerable the first go-round, but that opening scene. The schmaltz. They meet as kids, grow up and get married, have a miscarriage or can't have children or whatever. She gets sick. Like, I don't need my animated films to be thought-provoking. They tried a little too hard for that Best Picture Academy Award nomination. Number two, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I dislike most Kubrick films. I mean, he didn't make that many, but I'm usually like, ugh. Again, innovative, beautifully shot, but my god, what a snoozer. And speaking of, lastly, everyone's favorite, Citizen Kane. 
brilliant from a filmmaking standpoint, tripped the fan in 24 frames per second. Never has a two-hour movie felt like Gone with the Wind. I'll save you the time. It's the sled. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars Watch at Your Own Risk. Three stars Standard Fare. Four stars Worth Checking Out. And five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. To celebrate the 4th of July and the summer blockbusters it brings, these are my ruminations and observations of the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves from 1991. So how'd I miss it? Well, I'm not big on period pieces. Now, I know I've discussed this before. I understand that anything set in the past is technically a period piece, but my definition of a period piece is like a costume drama, something with British accents. A crinoline is usually involved. It was directed by Kevin Reynolds, who helmed Fandango, Waterworld, and was nominated for a 2012 Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Directing for a Miniseries, Movie, or Dramatic Special for Hatfields and McCoys. The screenplay was co-written by John Watson and Penn Densham, who scribed episodes of The Magnificent Seven. The movie stars Kevin Costner as Robin of Loxley. The two-time Academy Award winner is known for his baseball trilogy, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, and For the Love of the Game, as well as epics Dances with Wolves, The Postman, and Waterworld. His breakthrough role was Silverado in 1985. During the filming of Robin Hood in England, he became a fan of the Premier League football club and perennial fourth placers, Arsenal. Hey, I can say that because I'm also a fan. Morgan Freeman plays Azim Adin Bashar al-Bakir. He started his career on the television series The Electric Company, appearing in all 780 episodes from 1971 to 1977. He's had memorable roles in Driving Miss Daisy, Glory, Unforgiven, and won a Best Supporting Academy Award for Million Dollar Baby. He's in a top 10 movie of mine, Seven, and probably one of the greatest films ever, The Shawshank Redemption. If you've never seen it, just tune into TNT where they seem to be contractually obligated to play it every 48 hours. Marion is performed by Mary Elizabeth Mastriantonio of The Abyss and The Color of Money fame. She appeared on Broadway in West Side Story and Man of La Mancha. Since the mid-2000s, she's worked almost exclusively in television with roles in Without a Trace, Law & Order Criminal Intent, Hostages, Limitless, and Blindspot. At the time of filming Robin Hood, she was neighbors in London with co-star Alan Rickman, who plays the dastardly Sheriff of Nottingham, a role he initially turned down until the director allowed him free interpretation of the character. The classically trained actor made his feature-length debut in the movie Die Hard as villain Hans Gruber. He was 42 years old, which should be an inspiration to all late bloomers to never give up on your dreams. I would say he had a pretty spectacular, albeit brief, career. This is something to look out for. There is a cameo appearance by a famous Scottish actor that you couldn't miss if you tried. While fighting for King Richard the Lionheart in the Third Crusade, Robin of Loxley was captured and held for five years in a Jerusalem prison. When the detainees are accused of stealing bread, they're tortured by Ayyubid soldiers who cut off their hand one by one. Robin volunteers to be next on the chopping block, in place of his friend Peter Dubois. 
Before losing his appendage, Robin outsmarts and fights off his torturers. He escapes with Peter and frees a moor named Azim. As they emerge from a sewer hole, Peter is shot by an arrow, mortally wounding him. As he lay dying, Peter hands Robin a ring and asks him to give it to his sister Marion and swear that he will protect her, which he does. When Robin attempts to leave, he's followed by Azim, who says that since he saved his life, he will stay with Robin until the favor is returned. He tries to relieve Azim of the obligation, but he insists. At Loxley Castle in England, the Lord writes a letter searching for the whereabouts of his son Robin. When they last parted ways, there was anger between them. Robin was enthusiastic about the idea of fighting in the Third Crusade, but his father was against it, thinking it was futile trying to force others to become Christians. Maybe he can talk with some of our politicians. With King Richard the Lionheart visiting France, the Sheriff of Nottingham is in charge of law and order in the land, along with his cousin Guy of Bisborne, the Witch Mordiana, and the Bishop of Hereford. He pays a visit to Lord Loxley and asks him to join them in overtaking the throne. But when he remains loyal to God and King Richard, he is captured by the sheriff's posse and forced into a confession of devil-worshipping and forfeiture of all land owned by the Loxleys. Four months later, Robin arrives in England with Azim. After a brief encounter with Guy of Gisborne, he arrives at Loxley Castle to find his father dead. Along with Maid Marian and his merry men, Robin Hood vows to avenge his father's death and end the sheriff's reign of terror. Here's a quote without context. A wise man once said, There are no perfect men in the world, only perfect intentions. I think I enjoyed Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Not a ringing endorsement, I understand. But in general, I thought it was fairly entertaining, which is all I ask for in a film. And I totally get why it's a summer blockbuster. But all the pieces didn't fit for me. Alan Rickman was fantastic. Villain roles seemed to suit him well. In less capable hands, the sheriff could have been over the top and some of his lines considered cheesy. Instead, he's someone you want to see get his comeuppance, but not too hard. I think it was a very brave choice to have Robin of Loxley sound like Robin of Santa Monica. Was Kevin Costner supposed to have a British accent? I like him as an actor and would give him a monologue made up of specials at Applebee's and he would kill it. But I found the lack of accent distracting. It was completely out of place with the setting. Just imagine putting another actor in that role and having them use the same accent. Hey, you traveled 10,000 miles to save my life and leave me to be butchered. Doesn't fly. Outside of that misstep, it had a good amount of action set pieces. It was definitely more violent than I thought. It earns its PG-13 rating. I'm glad they didn't sugarcoat it, though. I mean, in the 12th century, a hangnail was a death sentence. Lastly, what happened to Morgan Creek Entertainment? They had a good run of popular titles, Young Guns, Major League, Ace Ventura. They fell off the map. Now for a little trivial trivia. Christian Slater, who portrays Will Scarlet, learned archery from Morgan Freeman, who taught him on set during filming. The cinematography was captured by Douglas Milsom, whose filmography includes Full Metal Jacket, Body of Evidence, Highlander Endgame, and Dungeons and Dragons, the last two starring Bruce Payne. It was edited by Peter Boyle. No, not that one. He worked on Summersby, The Postman, Still Crazy, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Film Editing for The Hours. The score was composed by Michael Kamen, who wrote the music for Highlander, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Roadhouse, X-Men, an incredible talent that we lost way too young at the age of 55. 
He was an orchestrator, collaborating with such artists as Pink Floyd, Queen, Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, Coldplay, and the resurgent Kate Bush. From the first notes, you knew this was going to be an epic score. That's what a good brass section does. I had no idea the theme for Morgan Creek was taken from this score. Disney also used it on their DVD releases. The soundtrack featured songs by Jeff Lynne and Brian Adams, whose hit single, open parentheses, Everything I Do, close parentheses, I Do It For You, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song and went on to win the Grammy for Best Song Written Specifically for Motion Picture or Television. The runtime is 2 hours 23 minutes. It had a budget of $48 million and grossed $390 million at the box office. It was nominated for one Oscar at the 1992 Academy Awards. I give it 3 out of 5 stars. I really wanted to like it more, and I'm tempted to, to grade it lower, but eh, it's fine. It is what it is. 3 out of 5 stars. If you've seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. In the 90s, there were a swath of movies that had an accompanying hit song. Can anyone think of Titanic without My Heart Will Go On? I wish we could. Obviously, the movie I reviewed on this episode, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, had, open parentheses, everything I do, close parentheses, I do it for you, which was number one on the Billboard charts for a staggering 14 weeks. You couldn't turn on the radio without hearing this song. Trust me, I tried. No one remembers the movie City of Angels, but I'm pretty sure you pumped up the volume when Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls comes on. Though I personally prefer the song Uninvited by Alanis Morissette from the same soundtrack. You had the music video for I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing, where Steven Tyler of Aerosmith is singing to his daughter Liv, which isn't creepy at all. It's a beautiful song written by the master, Diane Warren. There was Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen from the uplifting romp, Philadelphia. Did Bruce even make an effort to sing on that one? I swear it sounds like his jaws wired together. I was bruising about it, I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. Even the background vocals sound like they were recorded while sitting on a couch. I think Bruce was like, Whatever they're doing in Circle of Life, let's do that. But I'm debating if I should include the next two songs in the Best of the 90s soundtrack list. First, there's Unchained Melody from Ghost. Technically, it wasn't written or performed for the movie. It was just used in a very pivotal scene where Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze ruin a pot. Then there's I Will Always Love You from The Bodyguard. Not written for the movie, but it's probably one of the most iconic cover versions of a song. And much more iconic than the actual movie, The Bodyguard. What are some of your favorite songs featured in 90s movies? Hit me up on social media with the hashtag MattWatchThat. I've selected a few videos of my own which are all available in the MattWatchThat playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. 
I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about... The Last Blockbuster. Written by Zeke Cam and directed by Taylor Morden, the documentary tells the story of the rise and fall of Blockbuster Video and the last remaining store located in Bend, Oregon. It's always Oregon. My favorite part of the weekend was visiting Blockbuster Video and renting three movies. It was usually one for my parents, one for me, and one for the whole family. Yeah, I was special. I got my own. Mostly because I was the youngest. I looked forward to walking through those doors. Blockbuster had a distinct smell. I think it was the industrial carpet. My first stop would be the new release shelves. If they were all out, you could always check the return bin. I can't tell you how many times I walked down those aisles looking for just the right movie. And that was the ultimate Sophie's Choice. Well, I suppose Sophie's Choice was the ultimate Sophie's Choice. But you had to decide then and there what you were in the mood to see. Whereas with streaming services, you have your pick. So you scroll through the entire catalog and say, Well, I could watch this now, but maybe I'm in the mood for comedy. But I haven't seen that movie yet. Maybe I'll put this on my watch list. It's way too confusing. So many choices. I have to admit, I've fallen asleep with the remote in my hand while in the middle of deciding what I'm going to watch to fall asleep to. The ultimate irony. You have to have that deadline of, I need to make a choice right now. I'm actually a bit sad that there aren't places like Blockbuster anymore. It's surprising, too, because niche stores like Newberry Comics exist. So why couldn't a place celebrating movies? Maybe that's why I wasn't a business major. It's a nostalgic documentary with appearances by Kevin Smith, Sam Levine, Adam Brody, and other famous people who have worked there. The Last Blockbuster is produced by 1091 Pictures, released in 2020, and is currently streaming on Netflix. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and randomness. Marion is performed by Mary Elizabeth Mastriano. Mastrantonio? How do you say her name? Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a... Oh. That would be the air conditioning. Let me turn that off.